It's Monday, October 14th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Funds, Bill Barker. Happy Columbus Day, gentlemen. And a good week to you. Thank you, Chris. The market is open. The banks are closed. The bond market is closed. But the market is open. Therefore, we are open. Did you catch that quote over the weekend? I think Harry Reid was like, hey, I'm just really glad the markets aren't going to be open on Monday. They were you know, saying because they can't get this whole debt ceiling thing figured out. And they were like, uh, Harry, here's the thing. <laughs> They're open. That seems as good an entry point as any. Let's let's start with our lead story, which is that we are now three days from the debt ceiling deadline. The federal government is still in uh, some some type of shutdown. I guess it's not a complete shutdown, but cahoots. Um, but we were talking earlier, Jason. You look at Wall Street. You look at how this is playing out, and it seems like absolutely no one thinks we're going to. Miss the debt ceiling deadline. No one thinks we're going to default. No one thinks there's going to be a problem. Because if they did, we would see – well, we'd see the market tanking. We, we, we? We'd see that pricing in Selling off more than it is today. And I, stocks, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Friday there was a bit more optimism maybe than there is today. And if nothing really develops today, I'm sure we'll probably see a little bit more uh, you know, uncertainty and volatility tomorrow. And it'll just all kind of lead up until sort of that – last sort of hour solution where they figure out a way to kick the can a little bit further down the road. I mean, it's just, it's amazing to believe that these guys are so far apart that they can't seem to, uh, you know, work out a deal for the country. It's it's kind of like they're making it all about them. I don't think that's the case. Well, and I think it's easier for the average person and probably the average member of Congress to wrap their heads around the implications of a government shutdown as opposed to the implications of if we default, well, you know, I mean, if, if we don't raise the debt ceiling. I think everybody, any anyone who brings in any type of a federal paycheck is feeling the pinch of the shutdown. And I mean, even you know, my wife works for the State Department, and she's not getting paid right now. Now that's you know that sucks. I mean, we like getting paid, right? Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 going to be something that continues to reverberate throughout the economy. I think even if it's just a short term event, I mean. It's it's that uncertainty, and I, I was listening to NPR on Thursday or Friday. They were talking about how many people had filed for unemployment benefits for that first week after the shutdown, um, and and a very high percentage of federal employees that that had been filing for those benefits. And they were very clear to say, you know, look, guys, if you're filing for those unemployment benefits, it's understandable. Maybe you're in a, a little bit of a liquidity position here, but understand that you're going to be paid back, and so then you will have to pay those unemployment benefits back as well. So I think that just sort of encapsulates really sort of where our government is at this point. They just are making the process more difficult. It's like one more step. I I think that, yeah, the reason why this no chance of default is being priced in right now is that ultimately uh, everybody, everybody I'm going to I'm going to adopt one thing that some people will disagree with and that is that everybody here has put on the table that they can act reasonably with each other except a minority of of house uh Republicans. Except uh, some people may disagree with that. I'll accept that for the moment. And Boehner is in a position to not have to work with them to get the house to raise the debt ceiling and has said he will do that. So it as a as a bargaining chip he has walked away from that as being one of the consequences of not getting a bigger deal done. If push comes to shove, he will work with the Democrats and the reasonable House Republicans to simply raise the debt ceiling for some period of time. Right. So, 
So really, there that having been said, there there should be no chance that that uh, we will go into default. By the way, you just reminded me, um, uh, Jason. Uh, over the weekend, um, I saw a friend of mine I haven't seen in a long time. He is stationed at uh, the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, and uh, hey, and his, I used to work there. And his uh, his family is is understandably here in the states. Um, and it was it was interesting. It was uh, his wedding anniversary, so seeing him and his wife. And he was uh, and as different people would come into the room, he would uh, say, "Oh, that's that's so and so. We were evacuated together." <laughs> and you know, and so one thing just reminded me, like, "Oh yeah, that's right. When I have a bad day at my office, it's because the printer's on the fritz." And I have to walk to the printer that's farther away to pick up my documents. When I he, hate that. When oh. he's having a bad day, it's because someone has a shoulder-mounted rocket launcher and fired one off NBC. a half mile from the embassy. Embassies in lockdown. Yeah, um, that's, that's been an amazing but, amazing change there. But one of the other guys in the room was a guy who works for the Commerce Department. For safety reasons, he was sent back here to the States. Mm-hmm. And then was promptly uh, put on furlough because of the government shutdown. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, welcome back to the states. We're so happy you're safe. Oh yeah, yeah, we're we're not. Yeah, you yeah. I mean, it's job. it's really putting the screws to a lot of people. It's a shame. I mean, it'll obviously get worked out and things will get back to some semblance of normal. But man, I tell you, it's been a rough few weeks for some. It, yeah, it has. But uh, it's not as if the markets, and and that's part of what this show. You know, the perspective that this show. Uh, adopts is how things affect the markets. So the markets are not uh, exactly panicking about right. the, the government shutdown. Uh, you know, there's there are downsides to the economy over you know this quarter and and perhaps next quarter, and and stuff gets rolled a little further out. People receive paychecks uh, later than they need them, and and there are you know cash flow consequences for businesses around where, where government employees. Work certainly this area is affected, but it's not you know in the grand scheme of things up up to now a big enough economic impact that you would reprice the you know future cash flows of stocks. Yeah, and I think there probably is also some optimism out there, at least with the the certainty of Janet Yellen being nominated uh, to take over Bernanke's position. I think that there maybe is at least the perception out there that she will be somewhat accommodative mm-hmm. and and the uh, bond buying will continue so maybe free money policy has got people uh you know seeing the seeing the light at the end of the tunnel too let's move on to a company that uh, and a stock frankly that's just been on fire and that's Netflix which is up another 4% this morning on reports that Netflix is in talks with cable companies like including Comcast about uh, partnering so that essentially Netflix would be on the set-top box. They already have a deal in place in the UK uh, with Virgin Mobile. Uh, I don't know, Jason. This seems like, while it may not necessarily be a huge driver for them, and it's it's uncertain because they're just in talks, and talks are just talks. They, you know, there's nothing. And talk so, is cheap. That's all that we do here, right? <laughs> I mean, and so the listeners know what the value Ex- of talk is. Exactly. Um, but it also seems like yet another in a series of smart moves by Reed Hastings. Yeah, I mean, I, this is this is certainly right in line with his philosophy. I mean, we hear uh, it seems like on every call lately, he has reiterated the fact that they are fundamentally in the membership happiness business, and that's you know his his key focus is the member. And I, I think that whenever you have a company and leadership that is focused on that, um, 
that's a very powerful thing. And I mean, you look at Netflix stock today, does it look cheap? No, it didn't look cheap $100 ago either. It's just one of those things that you have to be able to look beyond, I think, the conventional sort of valuation of the company to understand exactly what leadership's priorities are here. And it's, it's a way to to facilitate the process, to open up uh, yet another platform for Netflix subscribers or potential subscribers. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's something that would you know, drive more membership or not. I mean, we have a cable box at home with Fios, but we're not Netflix subscribers, and I don't think anything like this would comp- compel me to do that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they still need content, and they need to figure out how to uh, you know produce their own original content to really to really separate themselves from something like an Amazon Prime streaming uh, product. But but I think I, I think it's probably a good thing for Netflix, and it's certainly something that we uh, would not have thought possible. Maybe just you know, two, three years ago. Bill, it seems like when you have a company the size and influence of Comcast coming to the table, if nothing else, that just seems like a a very nice validator for Netflix. Whereas, to Jason's point, two or three years ago, they were seen as an upstart, perhaps an irritant, competing with the likes of Blockbuster. You remember Blockbuster. I remember <laughs> Blockbuster, sure. Um, but, it, again, it just it just seems like, oh, you better take... I think if you're Time Warner Cable, if you're one of the other regional cable operators and you're waking up and seeing this news about Comcast sitting down and talking to Netflix, you probably have to change your mind to some degree about how you feel about Netflix. That uh, yesterday they were a rival... And now it's uh, maybe we we might have to start working with these guys. Yeah, I think so. Uh, for all of um, Comcast's flaws, and I, as a subscriber to Comcast, suffered all of them. Yeah, I think. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, in my uh, previous uh, house, uh, where I was kind of forced to have Comcast. Uh, did you've started me on this? Yeah. You just brought up the word Comcast. I did, and you knew I would bite. That's all you really wanted sit back to do. and get comfortable, yeah. everybody. This well, is I can be say the same to you. You, you've you guys had said you want market. Market. This is not about Comcast. This is not about Comcast. But they're a big company, and they're obviously doing a lot of things right to be as big as they are. Um, providing me with good service wasn't one of them, but you know, <laughs> that's not necessarily indicative of everybody's experience. And and given that, I think that, yes, partnering up with Netflix um, does uh, add even more legitimacy to, you know, Netflix being available wherever you want it on your, you know, iPod, um, you know, on your uh, computer, on, uh, you know, in Tablet. your DVDs and, and everywhere. And, and yes, it right now, uh, I think the, the distribution that would be most helpful to them is, is a you know, apps that are more easy to use than than what I've found so far. We're going to take a slight detour down Comcast Lane. <laughs> and Jason, I'll ask you this question because Bill has, has raised this to me before. You'd be hard-pressed to find a big consumer-facing company in America with as bad a reputation for customer service as Comcast. Sure, Comcast. there are others. I'm sure there are people listening right now saying, oh, I've got... Comcast has, has sort of owned that category I, I, of I'm just, finishing last in the like, yeah. national service. I'm just saying, when you're making the short list, Comcast is on it. Whether or not they're at the top of that, I'm not going to dispute anyone who has a, a different anecdote. And yet, when you look at Comcast, the stock... I mean, we, we talk about we love companies that focus on the customer, really take care of the customer, all that sort of thing. Here we have a, a business that has virtually no regard for the customer, and the <laughs> stock has been an outstanding performer. 
Why is that? <laughs> well, I mean, I I, am I realize not a I'm putting you on the spot here, and I I don't really uh, I, I cannot speak to their service. I mean, I I understand Bill's plight here. I mean, I've had I've had <laughs> it's not just Bill's plight; it's my with, plight. It's anybody's plight. Yeah. So I mean, on the one hand. You, you may not like it, but I mean, I think Bill said something that was important to this whole puzzle here is that he was more or less forced into his relationship with Comcast where he lived. And I mean, in many cases, you're yeah. forced into the relationship with your cable provider, whether it be Cox or Comcast. Thankfully, uh, you know, I moved into a house in Fairfax where Verizon Fios had already been installed, and that's our provider. And, and I have nothing but great things to say about them and the service and the product they provide. Uh but I think in many cases, Comcast can maybe let the the service slip a little bit because consumers are more or less stuck in many cases. And, um, and, and to top it off, not only are they stuck, but they're pissed because they have to pay you know, some exorbitant fee every month for 5,000 channels that they don't watch just to get the 15 that they do. And so I, I can understand you know, why people might get angry with that. But I mean, again, I mean, I think this is something that uh, – over time here, it seems Netflix is certainly playing a role in this, and Amazon to a degree, and even HBO. This model is on its way to being, to being displaced, in some capacity at least. And just to wrap up on Netflix, if we see them strike a deal with Comcast, do you think the others automatically fall in line? Or if you're Time Warner Cable, you're, you're scrambling to find an alternative, uh, some way to differentiate yourself? I don't know that they're, they're – automatically uh, going to jump on that. Although, you know, sooner or later, you've got to have the same package that somebody can get elsewhere for the same price. And so, you know, the way that the service is sort of divvied up in a lot of places and the lack of choice that people have in some major areas uh, determines the degree to which they have to strike deals. Uh, but it, it pressures them in certain of their markets for sure. Uh, let's wrap up with uh, with the Nobel Prize. The no- 2013 Nobel Prize for Economics was given out. Um, it didn't go to any of us, um, which tells me that surprise th- nobody. They they know what they're doing over there at the Nobel Committee. Um, but uh, what it, it goes to three economists: Eugene Fama, Lars Peter Hansen, and friend of the fool Robert Schiller who we've had here at our office uh, we're, we're generally big fans of Schiller he strikes me as as the rare economist with virtually no ego whatsoever or certainly not an outsized ego he'd be the first per- he has been the first person you know in the room to say yeah I don't I don't I don't really know I can't I don't have a crystal ball I can't predict the future but uh, Bill I, I w- I'm gonna go to you first because um, He's a Yale guy like you, so I'm, I'm assuming that that all of, of all Yale University alums are are uh, walking with a little extra pep in their step today. This is Yale's first Nobel. Did you know that? Wow! No, that's no. actually surprising. <laughs> <laughs> How is that possible? Um, but I've got this Bloomberg story that compares giving the Nobel Prize to these three people. Um, one person is quoted as saying, this is like giving the, the, a shared Nobel Prize to the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> are, are, these, are, are Schiller and Hanton and Fama so at odds with one another? Maybe not personally at odds, but it sounds like they're, they have rose to prominence with pretty distinct ways of thinking about the economy and different theories. Well, I think there are a couple of ways that you could interpret that quote, and I haven't seen it, so thanks for the prep. On that. <laughs> you know, 
could have set that uh, ahead of time. Well, he knows you're making it up. Let me give you one interpretation. Fama, uh, part of his and, and French's work is is on, uh, you know, the efficiency of markets, uh, and and which has led to indexing as being their their, their work is one of the uh, prime contributors to the rise of of indexing. Um, and Schiller's work is on the behavioral side. Some of his work, he's, he's done a lot of work in a lot of areas, but the behavioral side showing that markets are not perfectly efficient, that uh, there are things which cause prices to move in a way which cannot be explained by perfect efficiency. So, in a sense, his his work builds on, on Fama's work, and, and they couldn't um, exist without each other in kind of the same way that the Yankees and Red Sox couldn't really exist without each other to the degree of popularity and um, dominance that they have in the thinking. Um, I think both would agree that, uh, as, as I think the committee said in, in its uh, prize today, uh, that um, their work shows that nobody can predict the price of stocks and bonds over the next few days or weeks. Of course, most of what passes for financial journalism, um, particularly in, in TV, is premised on getting people to predict what is going to happen right. over the next couple of days. And so, you know, listeners, readers, whatever out there should should listen and, and consider the Nobel Prizes, uh, the, the committee's uh, words here that, you know, most of what you hear predicting where, where things are going to go in a sh- very short period of time is worthless. <laughs> and and the work of Schiller is showing that, nevertheless, pr- predictions about what will happen over longer periods of time, three to five years, the the returns of stocks and bonds over lengthier periods of times are are much, you know, easier to work with and more predictive and more likely to make you money than are you know the the predictions of what will happen over a short period of time. Yeah, the uh, the part of the quote from the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences um, that these three. And now Nobel laureates have, quote, laid the foundation for the current understanding of asset prices. Uh, it relies in part on fluctuations in risk and risk attitudes and in part on behavioral uh, biases and market frictions. So uh, there's like one part in that story that I thought was key to this whole thing about Schiller's approach. And it says, in short, Mr. Schiller learned that prices moved for a host of reasons, many of them not necessarily rational. Yeah. And And I mean, I think today – more than ever before, that statement truly applies because, I mean, prices move now thanks to a tweet from Carl Icahn. I mean, is that <laughs> rational? Probably not, at no. least, you know, not not to base your buy or sell decision on that. Uh, but, I mean, at, at the end of the day and, and every day, the market is a big disagreement, right? I mean, there's a buyer and a seller and both parties think they're right. And so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of psychology and behavior that goes into that. Headlines play into it. Uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook and, and all of these other outlets where, where information just happens instantaneously. I, I mean, that is just the perfect example of irrational price movement, right? Uh, you know, Schiller, you and you've interviewed him dozens of times. I've Chris. interviewed him once. Once. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that. But he impressed you with the, you, the one you time. You were close. And, uh, you know, he doesn't, on the face of it, make for great TV in that he answers frequently, you know, say, well, what, and and he's known to a lot of people uh, out there for the the Case-Shiller Index, which is a predictive, or is a measurement of of home prices. And so, well before, I think, 
home prices started collapsing, he was there saying, you know, my work shows that, that this is not likely to end well. But he he wouldn't, you know, come out and say, yeah, they're going to collapse now. He, he just doesn't make those kinds of predictions. Well, I don't know what's going to happen over the next year, you know, but, you know. His it, humility is refreshing. I mean, yeah, it really he's, is. The guy, he's the first one to say, you know, my work shows this, but hey, I could be wrong. Yeah, I could be wrong. And I, I certainly don't know what's going to happen over the next quarter. And and so he doesn't make for the kind of TV that is frequently lined up. But nevertheless, he's invited back because of, you know, the you know, the weight of, of his achievements in, in his studies. And, and people should take note, you know, that that you can predict longer periods of time uh, with some intelligence. Let's get to what people really care about, <laughs> in, and that is the prize. What do you get when you get the Nobel Prize? Uh, you get uh, money. Kroner. Eight, you get a lot of Kroner. Eight million Kroner, uh, which is $1.2 million. There's uh, a Kroner. A gold medal and a diploma. This will be at a ceremony in Stockholm. Presumably, you get, get a trip to Stockholm. You get a trip to Stockholm on December 10th. Worth noting, however, that since 2012, Nobel laureates have had to make do with 20% less in prize money than previous winners. Uh, this was a move the Nobel Foundation made to preserve its capital, which tells me that the people who are handing out the award for economics don't really have a great staff investing their money. They, they, their endowment committee needs to improve, the, you is know what, what you're saying. The, I, they need to improve, and maybe they should just you know, call up Warren Buffett and say, give me, you know, give me, give me Combs, give me Weschler, give me Ajit Jain. This is not an ad for Motley Fool Asset Management. <laughs> you're not saying they should no, call it up is. Motley Fool Asset Management. No, it is, no, I am absolutely not saying that. Because, <laughs> oh, no. thanks, Chris. <laughs> let's, uh, I thought you could have helped us out Let's there, say right? goodbye before <laughs> some sort of legal trouble takes place. Bill Barker. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I can, however, point out that if you want to read more from Bill Barker and his colleagues, you can go to foolfunds.com and sign up for their monthly free newsletter declarations. That's foolfunds.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>